I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 249 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today's episode is special, honoring and celebrating Juneteenth. It's an event that we had last June 19th, 2022, as part of the Psychoanalysis Art in the Occult series at Morbid Anatomy Museum Online. First, we have Langston Kahn presenting Animism for the Apocalypse, and then David Chi presenting Spirit Voices, the Mysteries and Magic of North Asian Shamanic Traditions. You can find a video to this at our Vimeo page. Links to everything can be found at renderingunconscious.org and in the liner notes accompanying this episode. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Huge thanks to everyone at our Patreon community. Your support is so very appreciated. We do post exclusive content at our Patreon every week. For example, this lecture and video were available to our Patreon community a year ago when the lecture was first given. To follow our events of psychoanalysis art in the occult at Morbid Anatomy Museum, you can visit psychartcult.org or morbidanatomy.org slash events. We have the privilege of having this talk be on June 19th, so we are celebrating and honoring Juneteenth. And first we're going to have Langston Khan present Animism for the Apocalypse, Working with Spirits and Ancestors to Find Freedom in Endings. And a little bit about Langston. Langston Khan is a Black queer teacher, author, and shamanic practitioner who specializes in radical human transformation, ancestral healing, and restoring an authentic relationship with our emotions. He stands firmly at the crossroads, his practice informed by somatic modalities, contemporary shamanic traditions, initiations into traditions of the African diaspora, and his helping spirits and ancestors weaving it all together. Langston is the author of Deep Liberation, Shamanic Teachings for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma. It's a fantastic book. Actually, Langston and David have both written fantastic books that I'll link to. I have both of them. I've read both of them, and they're wonderful. Um, Langston is a senior teacher in the cycle of transformation and has served for five years in the last Mask Community, a collective of people striving to live in alignment with ancient shamanic principles in service of personal and collective liberation. He lives in the ancestral lands of the Lenape, Rockaway, and Canarsie, also known as New York City. For more information, you can visit his website, LangstonCon, which I will also link to in the notes. So take it away, Langston. Thanks so much, Vanessa. It's so good to be here with you all. Um, I just want to take a moment, if you'll humor me, just to just to call on the ancestors a bit, just to help encourage them to be part of our conversation. For me specifically, that means um, when I say ancestors, I mean those who truly are showing up, who have gone before us in a way that 
their only agenda is to support us in bringing forward our medicine, to support us in being who we were dreamed here to this earth to be. And so I call out to you, ancestor helping spirits, you who hold all that is good and true and beautiful in our collective lineages. I especially call out to you, black ancestor helping spirits on this Juneteenth day, you who knew what it was to cultivate freedom and joy and connection and a generative relationship with life in a system that sought to extract your life force from you. You who loved and dreamed of a freedom that you might not know yourself so that your descendants could know greater liberation. You who innovated while carrying forward that which came before. We honor you this day and we thank you. May this conversation go forward in a way that supports all living things. So today I'm talking about animism for apocalypse. And maybe to start, I want to just share a brief story. There is this moment in my community, which is a community, a contemporary shamanic tradition. So um, not rooted in a traditional indigenous practice um, or like one of the peoples um, like David will be talking about who actually um, created the word shamanism, but a community of people striving to learn together to work with the invisible world and someone in a role that is working to tend balance between the individual and their own soul, the individual and their family, the family and the community, and the community and the natural world and the spirit world all around them. And in this community, we had just been sort of trying as people coming from the broken path, people coming from fractured lineages in a culture that didn't have a word for what you might call the role of the person who is shaman or the people who are choosing to practice shamanically in relationship to someone with that role. We were trying just to ask the questions of our helping spirits and figure out how do we do this? How do we do this community thing? How do we do this human thing in these times when so much is ending, so much is changing every day, so much is dying every day, you know, the mass extinctions. How do we show up as humans now on this earth in a way that we can actually learn to listen to life again and actually be in a truly generative relationship with life versus an extractive one. And we reached this point where we were stuck. We were stagnating. We were, um, you know, there was, there was a gathering of what we, we call in our community sort of like waste, junk, and shit. We think of waste as just like the natural byproduct of any living system. You know, we, we all have waste. We all generate waste. But there's this way that when we don't own our waste, we're not willing to engage with it and process it and kind of turn it into fertilizer so it can go back to the earth and, and be useful. Sort of, for example, um, just with our own inner work, withdrawing our projections and really looking at the root inside of us where those projections live and where those outer dynamics live inside of us that we're projecting out. When we're not willing to do that and we sort of say, that's not mine, 
in community, it turns into junk. It turns into these sort of like big obstacles that we all have to navigate around and sort of walk on eggshells around so we can't connect with open hearts with each other. And then when people take that junk and then leave the community, you know, so, so they're not taking it really. They're just leave. They're saying that's not mine. And actually I'm this whole community sucks. I'm just leaving. Then it turns from junk in our parlance into shit because now it's been left for everyone else to deal with because that person whose junk it was initially is gone. And so when we're, we were at a point in our community where, where the sort of shit was piling up and the junk was piling up. And we were, I'm sure many of us who have tried to live in community have experienced at one point or another where just suddenly the life of the community is being choked out because the gap is widening too much between who we say we are and how we're actually showing up with each other on a daily basis. And, and the vision that our community was sort of dreamed to um, manifest on earth as we understand it in our community. And so what we did in that moment is, is the, the, the teacher and um, shaman of that community and other community members using their skills divine together a ritual. And the ritual that our helping spirits gave us in that moment, that the spirits of our cosmology of our teachings gave us was to do a fire ritual in which we wrote out our high dreams for the community, like our fantasies or what the community might be, and our low dreams for the community, our nightmares of what the community already was or could become. And then we gave all of it up, the fantasies, the nightmares, everything, because we had all of these different visions that were pulling us in a million different directions. So we were stagnating and not manifesting anything. That was what our helping spirits diagnosed the root of the issue we were facing at that time in community. And then we waited two weeks. You know, the, the, the ritual was just held as this in-between time where we didn't yet have a vision for our community because we'd let our vision go completely. We'd released it. And we, so we didn't, we weren't ready to yet step into the new vision. We just didn't had nothing. And we had to hold that nothingness together, which is actually really challenging <laughs> to not rush to find the next vision or the new thing or the new thing to, or, and still yet stay passionately engaged in that unknown place. And what happened was when we came back together as a community in person, because we're a non-local community primarily, but we have these annual gatherings in person, um, what we did was a dance in which we embodied different stakeholders in the community. We embodied the, someone was dancing the earth. Someone was dancing the next generations coming into the teaching. Someone was dancing the different councils in the community of leadership. Someone was dancing um, the, the teachers. Someone else was dancing um, humanity itself, you know, and, and then we saw as we danced and we just sort of picked these stakeholders out of a hat. And as we work to embody them through dance, through our tools and our practices, we're moving into trance and letting these stakeholders, these spirits dance through us and dance us. We saw how those spirits interacted with each other through us. And then we would write on these big um, sort of, you know, pieces of paper, what was happening in our interactions without knowing who each other was, 
just knowing, oh, when I danced with Langston, he was really judgmental of me. And then he pushed me aside. And then, you know, like, or when I danced with this person, I was really drawn to her. She was amazing. She was wearing this glittering cape and I just kept wanting to dance with her. You know, we just kept writing out what was happening during the interactions. And what we found is now I should say the original, the context for this community is that the original community had been sort of divined, the structure of our community was divined in relationship with our helping spirits years before many of the people that were now dancing had even been in the community. We were only, uh, maybe there was like one or two people who had been in the original, that original process of divining the structure of the community. So we truly had no idea even what the actual vi original vision of the community was. But what we found was as we danced, as these spirits moved through us, the vision was right there. The vision that came through with such clarity was the same vision that had been divined years before by another group entirely. And we now had a visceral felt sense of a relationship with that vision. So we were able to live it in an entirely different way. And within another, um, like within a, a year of that dance, whereas before we've been struggling to get people enrolled in the community, struggling to get new people joining the classes that are required, sort of like a teaching and learning community to join it, suddenly they were all sold out with waiting lists. It was like our helping spirits have been waiting for us to actually come back into alignment with the vision that we'd originally been given, to come back into that level of integrity. And for me, I learned a lot about endings in that moment. Now, I should say, too, that right now, that same community years later is in another process of dying and rebirth. So it's not like this was like an ending or happily ever after. Um, I think the times we live in demand a lot of willingness to move into death and try again a willingness to go back to that empty place where we can be in conversation with the earth and what it's wanting to bring through us and risk a new expression, risk something else coming through us that we're passionately committed to without being attached to the outcome. And so I share that story because I think right now, a lot of us are facing different endings in our life. We're facing, um, you know, loss of, of loved ones, loss of different like lifestyles, loss of institutions we might've believed in or felt supported by, um, loss of belief systems. As we realize some belief systems we hold are actually harmful to us or harmful to other people. Loss of even stories we learned to survive when we were younger um, that sort of became our trauma. That, that we're working to let die and let go of. I think everyone I know right now is facing a lot of endings all at once. And we also have the larger ending that of, of the you know, climate catastrophes we face and, and the ways humanity seems to be um, swiftly careening <laughs> towards its own ending on this planet potentially. And for me, a helpful context that has come out of my own dance with endings 
was the animus context that you find in many indigenous cultures around the world. Um, for example, the Hopi, the Aztec, the Navajo, um, just to talk about a few, um, but also in the, you know, the Dagara, Burkina Faso in West Africa. There's also, um, there's many different cultures that, that hold stories of endings of humanity, of times of ending when the human project fails essentially, and we have to start again. And what happens in those endings is that there is an attention to the stories that people are holding through those endings. It's sort of like a commonality you find in these stories is this, these ways that things can slip through those times of transition, these almost like initiatory gates that open up thresholds that we have to step across. And if you don't release what was causing the harm in the old world in the first place, a new world arrives with those same illnesses or new versions of those same illnesses. And so what I'm interested in talking about today is just ways we might begin to think about the stories that we're choosing to tell with our lives, not just verbally, but with the actions we're taking in each moment of our day. And if we were the one human left, if we were the human that was the one to recreate the world, that was going with a small band of others, was going to travel through this threshold and have a chance at creating a new world, given how we show up on a daily basis, not our sort of ideal vision of how we show up on a daily basis, but just how we actually show up in our every day. What stories would we be bringing forward with our lived experience? What new world would get created in our image? And how might we begin to engage the intelligences of our own spirit, of our ancestors, of our grief, and of the earth to help us align more fully with the stories that we want to tell, the stories that we want to carry forward. So there's this bell hooks quote that I really appreciate, which is to be truly visionary, we have to root our imagination in our concrete reality while simultaneously imagining possibilities beyond that reality. And so for me, I see myself and a lot of people getting collapsed into the mess of our time, you know, the pain of our time, or bypassing out of that mess into the future we're desperately chasing after, or our own little sort of vision for our personal life, or our, um, you know, false positivity, you know, like pushing away anything that doesn't, that feels uncomfortable. And, and so controlling more and more tightly our little sphere of existence. But as Bell Hooks is teaching us to truly be visionary, we have to root our imagination in our concrete reality while simultaneously imagining possibilities beyond that reality. And to me, what, what animist traditions teach us is that to do that well requires a change of heart, requires building our capacity of heart because that is the one part of the body that's 
that's the same in all the worlds, in a sense, that energetic center of our heart that can travel, that can hold the current reality and also hold the vision of the future. And through our willingness to hold both of them in our heart, allow our creativity to get sparked and, and us to take actions that actually have traction in reality towards that vision. And so for me, what's really helped me in exploring how to both increase that capacity of heart and how to, how, how to, how to hold both the current reality and the vision without bypassing into either solely is first just working with this idea from animist cultures of what the role of a human is. So in most animist and shamanic cultures, there isn't this question of what is the function of a human? There isn't this sort of existential question of like, why are we here? There's this knowing that the function of a human is essentially, I mean, one way of phrasing it is obviously a little um, simplistic, but, but one way of phrasing it is to be a custodian, to be in a custodial relationship with all of life. And then understanding that all of life of course, includes humanity, that humanity is meant to be, from an animist perspective, one part of this larger organism, this larger spirit of all of life. And so in that dream of all of life, humanity has a vital function to play in it. We're not just some like parasitic force or some invaders, or we're also, but we're also not sort of the stewards or leaders. We're the custodians, we're the janitors. We're meant to be helping tend life in a generative way. So what this looks like in a very concrete, you know, context of an intact traditional culture might be, for example, um, certain cultures planting reeds, extra reeds in the river, because they know that will help the fish to spawn there. So there'll be more fish there. Um, helping, you know, to do controlled burns. There aren't wildfires that destroy forests. You know, all these different ways that indigenous people have understood for thousands of years, how to tend the land, not just sustainably, not just like not taking too much, but in a way that centers the health of the land and the earth in that tending, knowing that when we center the health of humanity, we get what we have now, you know, <laughs> whereas when we center the health of the earth, then everything thrives, including humanity, if we're truly doing that. And so, there's this, within that context, there's a um, Peruvian word that I really appreciate, really Quechua word actually, um, called Aini, which is this idea of sacred reciprocity, this idea that to be a human on earth requires an immense amount of resources being poured into you. Like it takes a lot of resources to give a soul a body on earth, and it's a privilege. And it takes even more resources to sustain that life over the course of a lifetime of a human life. And so the only way from the perspective of, of, of these people is to actually pay back that debt that we incur through this and to engage in sacred reciprocity is to do our thing, to do the unique thing that we 
as a human being was, were incarnated here to do. The unique thing that humanity was incarnated here to do to be a custodian, but also that unique thing that we as an individual human being can only do. And it's not like a role, like to be a teacher, to be a father or mother, or to be a um, you know, doctor. It's about, those are vehicles for this energy, but it's about that unique energy that you can't help but be. And our work is to align more and more fully with that energy we can't help but be, primarily through attending to our desire, which of course requires being in our body so we can actually feel where our desire is leading us. And when I say desire, I'm not just meaning the cravings of our culture, like the, or the addictive impulses, but that ache of our true longing, that ache of our desire that pulls us on the path of our destiny. That thing that if we, if it didn't exist in the world, that essence of didn't exist in the world, we wouldn't want to wake up. We wouldn't want to be here. But if it was here, if there was a way to express that energy, even if we were exhausted, we would still want to show up and tend it in some way. That kind of ache. And so as from this perspective of Aini, of the sacred reciprocity, we, we pay back all the resources that are poured into us through aligning with and finding generative vehicles for the expression of that energy. And we work to share those gifts, hopefully in a way that's actually in relationship with the land that we are on versus in an extractive relationship. We're always in relationship, but for a generative relationship versus an extractive one. And of course, the land that we're on also includes the humans that are all around us because they're part of the land too. It's, there's not the separation between humans and the natural world in this way. And so we don't want to be a clog in the pipe. We want to be part of this flow of making possible the force of love in the universe able to flow through us in the form of our gifts being shared with life and each other in a way that generates a sense of abundance versus being the clog that's sort of like binding these energies of the earth in a form that they can't flow. And so for me, one of the, aside from all the basic ways, we can just simply engage, you know, psychological approaches and spiritual approaches to release the stories we hold that where we have bound up Earth's energy in the form of, say, my resentment towards my mother or my, you know, anger about that thing that happened to me when I was younger, the way we can show up for ourselves who got stuck in those moments so they can release those stories and come back into the fullness of who we are and remind us of that unique energy that we are. In my experience, one of the biggest things that blocks us from both being able to do that, but also being able to actually just even feel that pull from the land around us to do that is the unresolved energy of the ancestors. And so again, from this, Animus perspective, there's this understanding that the dead need support to get where they need to go to some extent, that, that, that death needs to be tended well, that when a person passes, they need support in fully releasing, you know, making sure that they died in a timely way through divination perhaps, and, and then making sure they're supported and actually becoming a true ancestor, making their journey to the ancestral realms and then called back in a way that they can show up for the living so we're not constantly reinventing the wheel. And of course, that's different 
from culture to culture exactly what that looks like or what the standard is expected of, of the ancestors but or, or how they're engaged with. But there's this understanding that that tending of that gate needs to happen. And what I find in, in a lot of contemporary culture is we, we start to get lost in the grief of those who have gone before us that has been unexpressed. And that unexpressed grief gets passed down to the next ancestor and then and the next ancestor until we're left with this huge weight of grief on us that it feels scary to even touch into. And so again, we pass on that pattern potentially of not grieving. But in my experience, one way we can begin to create the container needed to feel that grief and release it so we can begin to feel our desire again and feel what the earth is pulling out of us again is through beginning to engage tools to come into relationship with our well ancestors, those ones that were supported in fully becoming ancestors or engaging spiritual technologies to support our unresolved ancestors in becoming ancestors who can show up in a healthy way in relationship to us and releasing these blinders that the unresolved ones put on our vision that prevent us from even feeling into that possible future and just keep us feeling mired in the way things have already been done and the mess of the past. And so when we're able to do that, when we're able to begin pulling forward the wisdom of the ancestors and releasing the unresolved energy of those who have come before, then I feel the next ally is is really useful is our own grief because our own grief when it's flowing when it's able to be expressed brings us right back into relationship with our true longing that I was talking about there's this way that that grief opens us up to motivations that are not just like the wounded parts of us or what we wanted and didn't get or perceived expectations of others or the beliefs about what we should be. We begin to be able to be motivated just by our own true longing. Um, There's this one experience I had where I was feeling into what had been ungrieved in my life and what I felt pour out of me was actually this grief about a loss of trust with men in my life. This feeling that I couldn't fully share the full radiance of my heart with other men in my life out of, out of fear from experiences that had happened to me. And when I was able to actually feel that grief of that disconnect there, then I could feel the longing for that connection in a different way. And I was able to let that longing move me into both work with, uh, with myself to heal that, that wounding around my own maleness and other men in my life and also begin to guide other men in the same healing in a way that helped me to develop much stronger relationships with men in my life that I never would have done if I hadn't been willing to first just feel the grief of that loss. And so that's just one example of the way when we're willing to give ourselves the ritual attention we need to have a container to feel and express our grief, then we can realign with our desire, begin doing the unique energy we're here to be. 
we can begin moving the unique medicine we have for the people that when we first pick up feels like poison. Begin transmuting it so that it can actually be the medicine it's meant to be and be sharing it. So for me, one question that's been really helpful to come back to again that I invite you to, to try if you feel moved to is to, is to go somewhere in the land, somewhere by a tree or by a river, someplace where you feel undeniably that pull of the land around you and your relationship to it that we're always in, but it's harder sometimes to feel in our little bubbles that we create that are climate controlled. So going somewhere you can feel that pull in relationship with the land where you are and dropping into your heart. And if you don't have a relationship with well ancestors yet in your life, just calling out to death itself, death as an archetype, death as the energy that teaches us how to live, that teaches us how to live each day as if it were a good day to die. And just ask death to come into your heart and death will come there. And ask death, what, have I left ungrieved? Show me what I have left ungrieved. And see if you can let death, death navigate you towards that. You could move in your body with it. You could um, just feel the symbols that your body shares, the emotions, the intuitions, the felt senses in your body kinesthetically. The, and just be with those symbols, play with them, explore them, and answer that question of what have I left ungrieved? And then you might also ask, what needs to die so I can feel my true longing? And then see if you can, in some way ritually that feels right to you, give a death to that which needs to die. Like, let's say it's my fear of the unknown or the belief that if, I don't, if I'm not in control, I'll be crushed or, or I'll be, you know, I'll lose myself. Um, whatever it is, see if you can articulate that into like maybe two or three sentences or two or three energies, put it into some kind of object and give it up, whether you're burying it or burning it, putting it in a river, in some way working with the elements around you to release it, to let it go and to ask for that help in letting it go off your heart. And so... As we work, we hold this standard that we learn from the earth of being in this flow that allows, of being in a, in a level of relationship, of right relationship that allows true love to flow through us and be shared with those around us. And we work to release the stories we've bound up, the energy we've bound up from the earth in the form of our stories. We work to connect with our well ancestors. We work to re come into relationship with our greed. And all these can happen in any order. And they can all be an endless journey that we're on in our life in different ways. We, we just choose to touch wherever there's leverage to come back to our longing. It brings us right back to that custodial relationship with the earth and that ability to be grounded and rooted here while also imagining a possible future that's more beautiful than the one we're looking at currently. And so... I just want to leave you with a, with a poem um, by Emmanuel. 
Death is nothing to be apprehensive about. It is just part of the process that you have been involved in for centuries. You are not at the edge of an abyss. You are merely taking another step in your eternal existence. Souls need ways to get out of bodies when ready. My dears, why do you tremble so? Death is a swinging door. Thank you, Langston. Thank you, Vanessa. We're going to do questions and stuff at the end after David, but I just have to say all I want to do anymore since we moved to our little town is walk in the forest and work in the garden. And whenever I'm in the garden, all I think about is like, this is what people should be doing. Like, I don't know, being with the earth, working with the earth. And like you said, being a custodian or gardener, like just changing things a little bit to help them flourish more, you know? that's how I've been feeling lately. So it's really nice to hear you talk about that. All right. And now we have David Shi. David Shi is going to be presenting Spirit Voices, the Mysteries and Magic of North Asian Shamanic Traditions. David Shi is a shamanic worker and folk magic practitioner who engages in traditional North Asian forms of shamanism. He is primarily of Manchurian descent, but can also trace ancestry to Mongolian, Chinese, Korean, as well as a little Tungus, Siberian, and ancient Central Asian Turkic heritage as well. Raised in a household that incorporated both Southeast Siberian and North Chinese practices, David has dedicated his spare time to the study of the spiritual traditions of his ancestors and of greater Eurasia. Recognized as a Sagasha Ongotengeriti, a future shaman prior to initiation, among both Mongolian and Korean shamans, David's practices are deeply rooted in spirit work in which ancestral and land spirits are called to empower all workings. David's readings incorporate a combination of tarot, runes, bones, jaw harp, as well as Mongolian stone divination, known as Kumalak in Turkic Central Asia. David is the author of the book, North Asian Magic, Spellcraft from Manchuria, Mongolia, and Siberia, which I linked through in the chat. Take it away, David. All right. I have a tough act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you, Langston, uh, for that. Um, so I'm going to uh, be switching things up a little bit. So first of all, if you saw the title of my talk, that's actually the title of a book that I've been working on that will actually be coming out uh, in May of next year, um, which is called uh, Spirit Voices, um, Mysteries and Magic in North Asian Shamanic Traditions. And basically what it does, and I'm, it's going to be kind of relevant to this talk, is that um, I will be, it will essentially be exploring the different uh, traditions of shamanism across North Asia, across the various Mongolian tribes, Siberian tribes. I think uh, talking about a lot of what's the similar, what's different. A lot, a lot of what they practice is very similar because they are very much related to each other. The differences are mostly regional differences. Uh, and that's what I'm going to be talking about in that book. And in terms of this 
uh, conversation, it's going to be a little bit um, similar. So, uh, so rather than uh, while Langston talked about uh, animistic and spiritual practice from a uh, contemporary lens, uh, a lot of what a lot of my practice and a lot of what I do is a little bit more from a traditional lineage. Um, as Vanessa mentioned in her intro of me, I'm primarily of Manchurian descent. Uh, I've received teachings from uh, Mongolian sh um, shamans and Korean shamans, both of which have maintained unbroken lineages for uh, for at, over a millennia. Um, and so I do actually want to uh, really quickly pull up a map through screen share just to give some people sort of visual, uh, a, a visual look of what is uh, of what I might be talking about. So this map that you see, it's not a perfect map, but it's one that I do like a lot. Um, it talks, a, it, it basically color codes um, the types of spiritual practices throughout um, most of uh, Eurasia, really. Um, so if you look at this area where there is, uh, I don't know if you can see my mouse or not, but you'll see in the middle of Asia, there's a crescent moon underneath the word Buryatia. Um, that is Lake Baikal. And Lake Baikal is widely considered to be the birthplace of um, shamanism, of what we know to be shamanism. Some anthropologists believe it's a little bit, it's to the mountains towards the east, some believe it's towards the mountains to the west. Um, and the reason why I say it's the birthplace of shamanism as we know it is because, as Langston mentioned, the word shaman or saman actually comes to us from North Asia. Uh, it came to Europe from both Russian and Dutch anthropologists who traveled into Siberia and talked with the Evenk tribe, uh, which you'll see um, a little bit to, uh, in, in the middle to the right. Um, they spoke with the Evenk tribe, and the Evenk tribe, when talking about themselves, uh, referred to them at themselves as shamans. And that is the words that these anthropologists then brought back to Europe and and uh, before they did that, the Russian anthropologists, they learned that word and they decided to apply it to every tribe that they encountered in Siberia, which technically is still correct. Uh, but then that word from the Russian and the Dutch traveled to the French, who were their closest allies, and then to the English and Spanish. And lo and behold, they used that word to uh, uh, for every indigenous culture they encountered around the world, whether or not those animistic cultures were shamanic or not. Um, but uh, if we look at the actual practice of shamanism, you'll see that it, it did uh, travel a little bit. Um, this is sort of the biggest cradle of shamanism. It traveled south towards uh, Manchuria, Inner Mongolia, northern China, Tibet, Nepal, obviously ac across through Siberia, east towards Korea and the Ainu people of Japan, Hokkaido, as well as to the Sami people. The shamanic traditions of the Sami people are actually very much related to uh, what I practice, even though we are a whole continent away, um, the differences are largely regional. Um, and and, uh, and I'll uh, stop share for a second because I think I've, that served this purpose. So one, one of the dicey things about the word shaman, and this is a conversation that both Langston and I see raging on social media and off social media all the time is, what is considered shamanism and what is not. There's a lot of arguments about this. Now, if you look at the definition of the word shaman or saman within the original languages, it's actually 
The word shaman is easy to define, but the word shamanism, adding that ism to it, complicates it a, a whole bunch because the the role is the word for the role has always existed, but for uh, the word for the practice has never really existed. And there's a Western attempt to create a word describing the practice. Now, if you sep- if people separate the role from the practice, that creates a whole lot of issues because shamans do a whole lot of things that other indigenous cultures around the world do, uh, some uh, to, to varying degrees, some more closer, some a little bit more different, some more, some fewer. Um, if we just define the, the word shaman traditionally um, within the original language, it really refers to a person who was chosen by the spirits to go into deliberate and controlled trance states in which either they are are possessed by the spirits um, to to um, serve the community, or the the community uh sorry, or the spirit that possesses the shaman then takes the shaman's soul and takes them on a spirit flight. Well, a lot of people might, it's it's where the word uh, spirit journey is sort of inspired from. Um, so there's a lot of nuances to this. Uh, there, there's obviously the practice, the transpossession and the spirit flight, but then there's the aspect of the role of someone who is uh, chosen by spirits when they are born um, to take on this role. Now, so uh, the word shaman actually refers to a very specific role but the practices, there's variations of these practices uh, happening individually or in conjunction all over the world. So what is considered shamanic? Now, in the map that I showed you, it's the red portion showing, is showing where it shows cultures today uh, where that culture is still influenced by um, the shamanic culture, the, sh- the shamanic practice and the role the shaman influence how that culture is developed, whereas the, in the other ones, uh, not so much. Um, so why am I making this distinction? Uh, I'm, this is really where it starts to get into a little bit of a complicated um, and sometimes uncomfortable discussion about uh, whether or not a certain culture is shamanic, whether or not a certain practice is shamanic, and whether or not a certain person is a shaman. Now, the most militant people I've come across, and I understand their Um, their intention. The most militant people will say, well, if you're not from a Siberian culture or from one of these cultures, you can't be a shaman because it's their word. I get it. I get that understanding. Um, But that being said, uh, what I like to tell those people is we have a definition and that definition doesn't necessarily limit uh, the word to our cultures. Uh, Our cultures were the ones who had developed this for thousands of years, but in our belief system, a shaman, a shamanic lineage can technically appear anywhere in the world. Um, what it simply means is that that lineage would be a little bit newer and they won't have the quote unquote benefits of being developed in a culture that was already built around shamanism. So uh, what I tend to see happen is that um, there are people that I know who are not from these cultures and I would consider them to be a shaman just based off of the type of relationship they have with their spirits and what their spirits have done, um, essentially chosen them for a specific role and inflicting them with sickness if they haven't. Uh, and they have, and so they have to go through a process that to me, that 
that is that falls within our definition, but they're just not raised in a culture or they're somewhere in between. Um, and I know this, uh, I don't know if this is going to be uh, stepping on Langston's foot or not, uh, but what I have heard, and this is just my own interpretation, um, there's powerful animistic and spiritual practices all over Africa. But Africa is geographically very diverse. It's topographically very diverse. There's deserts, there's mountains, there's rainforests, there's grasslands, there's all kinds of different, different um, types of geographies. The land looks very different, which means then the, the spiritual practice is going to look very differently. Uh, so what that means is that one group of people in one area, it might be more shamanic and then cross the mountain range, uh, your next door neighbors, they're not going to even uh, be anywhere close to shamanic. Um, what I have seen amongst some of the West African traditions that a lot of, I think a lot of people in the West are maybe a, bit, a little bit more familiar with this, those traditions are very spiritual. They incorporate a lot of transposition. I don't know how much spirits like they Corporate, but what I've noticed is that within their, uh, I guess, clergy, let's say their clergy, they go through initiation, but anyone could technically go through initiation. There are people who have a choice, but every once in a while, I hear stories of a particular person, particular son or daughter, who then gets struck with spirit sickness, and then they have no choice but to initiate, to become part of that clergy. And that's the only way that will save their life because the spirit sickness would have killed them. Uh, so in my interpretation, while that culture is not shamanic in the sense that it was built around the concept of shamanism, that one person is probably a shaman. Of course, I don't know for sure. We would have to, uh, we have our own ways of checking. Um, so so what, what, and this is something that I did want to address a little bit in terms of animistic practice and shamanic practice um, just, around, just around the world and how shamanism develops and how shamanic lineage develops. And, I, and one of the reasons, uh, when this talk started, when we first logged on, uh, I volunteered Langston to present first. <laughs> Part of the reason is because I did want to hear what Langston uh, has to say. And so that way I can somewhat tailor my conversation to sort of complement and work with just so that mine is not completely off base because I, I read the topic for Langston's talk and I thought it was, it was even fascinating just to read the, the, uh, the title. Um, so, uh, what, so one thing I did want to address in terms of uh, a traditional shamanism versus animism around the world is that this shop, people, a lot of, People nowadays, uh, they see the word shaman, they see the word shamanic, and it's become such a sexy term. It's becomes a term that like, like almost people feel that it's a, that term grants a level of like a, a power or rank, or it just, you know, makes you feel good. When in reality, it is just one type of practice or one type of role specifically. Every culture around the world has developed spiritual practice um, that fits the needs that that culture and that community need needed at the time. Um, if you if you remember from the map that I pulled up, those areas that had traditional shamanic cultures, those are all very frigid um, areas. They're areas that were very they're very difficult to survive in. And ironically, whether or not this is the case, 
in many of those cultures, while if they did have deities or gods, they, f- they, they either were more distant or they felt more distant to the point where those cultures had developed uh, with the background that it was harder for them to reach out to their gods. They needed something else um, to help them uh, survive, to help them spiritually in order to survive. And the reason that shamanism has, uh, one of the main reasons why shamanism has developed in these cultures is because those people, um, they needed a more direct interaction with their spirits uh, in order to be able to figure out what to do next, how to survive the next winter, or how to uh, go about the practice. Someone who lives in a a lush and a very fertile area, um, they're... their priorities of survival, I mean, they still have priorities of survival, but they will be thinking more in, in lines of, uh, will the next harvest be good or great? Um, so they're, they're, they have different challenges in life. And for them, it's, it might be, they might feel closer to their deities to the point where they might not necessarily need such direct interaction with, um, with spirits that are not as deities. And I think this is part of the reason why a lot of institutional religions, um, even er- earlier in their their development, had varying degrees of interactions with spirits that are not, you know, heavenly, um, so to speak. Um, and so and so this is something that I think uh, I, I like to remind everyone that ju- if if someone like me, from a traditional lineage says some to someone that their practice is not that's technically shamanism or their culture is not technically shamanic. This is in no way saying that their practice is not legitimate or powerful. And, and that's something that they're, they're beautiful in their own right. Um, I'm just making distinctions between uh, apples and oranges here. Um, but um, so, so with that said, um, I, there's something I do, else I do want to pivot with and there and it is a conversation about the land as well, um, within our belief system and within a lot of um, indigenous belief systems around the world. I think one of the reasons why there is such a a deep importance tied to the land, at least for us, is that in our belief, and this is part of the way how our cultures developed with the shamanic um, role in mind, is that it is very difficult to connect to the divine without our ancestors, because in many ways, our ancestors are what are, they are the ability for us to connect to the divine. But that being said, it is very difficult to connect with the the ancestors without the land or the land spirits specifically. Um, The land spirits uh, are, in our belief, the only spiritual entities that are indigenously from the earth, from the land. Our own soul, and most cultures around the world, they pretty much agree that our own souls, our human souls, were not originally from here. They came here from somewhere else, whether it is uh, the heavens or the spirit world. They were there originally, came to here, inhabited a human body, uh, live here for some time, and then after death, our soul then leaves and returns to the spirit world, or they move on to somewhere else. So we're we're really guests. Um, So that being said, uh, when we, during the time that we are here, where we're living a very material existence, it is difficult to connect 
with divinity to what is divine, to, to the spiritual. And that's why we need um, our ancestral spirits and the land spirits to help us with this process. Within our own um, symbology, we say that whenever our ancestors come down, especially for transpossession, but in general, whenever our ancestors come down, they come down and greet the land spirits and the land spirits then carry them to us. Or sometimes they say the, the ancestors ride the land spirits who then come into us. Uh, and so this is part of the reason why why uh, whenever I talk to anyone of spiritual practice, I do ask them what their relationship is with the land, with, with the land spirits and the land that they are on. If they are not cultivating a strong relationship with the land, it's going to be very hard for them to achieve the full potential of their connection with their ancestors and even further. Uh, and to people who already believe that they have a strong connection with ancestors and um, and deities and gods without land spirits, I'm going to bet that with a strong relationship with the land spirits, it will be even, it will be an even stronger relationship. It will create something even more powerful for them. And so, and so like this, I think this is a pretty universal concept and I'm, and I'm happy that uh, Langston addressed it. I kind of just also want to address the same thing from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, in terms of, uh, I lost my brief train of thought there. <laughs> uh, so what, with the uh, the importance of uh, of land spirits, land spirits uh, in many ways own everything that is material on Earth, and that includes us humans. That goes back to a point that Langston has mentioned about the humans are part of the land as well, and part of that is actually uh, the belief within my culture or my belief system. Our, they say that the, our souls belong to the heavens and our bodies belong to the earth. And while we are living, it is a conjunction of our souls with our bodies. Um, but what that means is our bodies are technically the properties of the, the property of land spirits. Even if we are diaspora populations, we travel to areas that are not where our ancestry is from. It essentially means that we have to work with both the land spirits of the land that we're on and the land spirits of our ancestry because our um, our bodies, our ancestral lineages technically belong to another land. So that's something that those of us who are of diaspora populations uh, sort of need to take into account. So whenever I do any of my offerings uh, ceremonies, I need to address both. Um, because I am obviously occupying a land that is not originally mine, but my body and my blood belong to another region of land spirits. Uh, and they and as long as we carry that blood, they can find us. The, the joke uh, within people of my of my culture is that in many cases, the spirits are visually blind, but their sense of smell is so strong. You can go anywhere in the world or even possibly in outer space. They, they'll find you because of how your blood smells. Um, and, that's how, and that's how they'll find you. Uh, and one, one of the reasons why spiritual practice has evolved so differently around the world uh, is because the land around the world is so different. The land, many in many ways, the land that we live on dictates the way we live. It dictates the way we um, work spiritually, and it also dictates the temperaments of the spirits as well, both uh, the land spirits and the ancestral spirits from that land. And and uh, one thing that we always need to take note of when we do work 
a relationship with the land is that is the climate of that land. How what is that land like? Um, and where what type and where your in terms of where your spirits and where your ancestors come from, what is that land like? The reason th- there's always historical reasons why different cultures and different spirits might not get along. But uh, another aspect might be is because the type of lands are so different, there's you'll you need to find a little bit of a compromise um, in terms of working with that type of land. And what part of what I mean with that is through offerings. What is it that those spirits need? Uh, in sp- in uh, spirits that are from areas that are very dry, water is a great offering. Uh, but in areas where uh, water is a little bit more abundant, and water might not mean as much as certain things. But there's also a lot of symbolism being um, being developed. For example, in much of North Asia, being nomadic cultures, they are also very pastoral which means they were not agriculture-based. North Asian cultures are, are one of the cultures in the world that throughout its history, almost, almost never engaged in agriculture. They might have engaged in agriculture here and there, but overall, it is a very meat and dairy-oriented lifestyle. Um, so what that means is within areas like Mongolia, they like to give milk as an offering a lot. Why? Because um, milk was the primary source of um, liquid that was available for consumption, uh, for washing, for all sorts of things. And also there is a symbolism behind milk. Milk is seen as, in many cultures around the world, not just North Asia, as the essence of life. It is what um, mammal mothers create to nurture their young. So it is a symbol of life and it is also considered the symbol of motherly love and motherly care and nurturing so that's why that is considered a very strong offering. And I think this, um, for people who are looking to do offerings, um, I found that that works in many cultures around the world, in many different lands around the world, the importance of milk to some degree or not. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, w- one thing that I do want to uh, reemphasize is that whether animism or shamanism or any spiritual practice the differences that we see are from regional differences. And what and another angle from that is what are taboos in one culture might not be taboos in another culture. And when you explore the different taboos, um, they're, if, if they're unexplored, they can easily become superstition that gets and gets passed along as different um, as just sound weird sounding superstitions. But oftentimes these taboos, were uh, developed for survival techniques and for what the spirits there consider to be appropriate or to not be appropriate. Um, And this is to any of us who are currently living in a land that's not where our ancestors are from. Be aware of the local taboos because the land spirits, um, there's a good chance that they might carry those same taboos. Uh, And so that is something I think will really help deepen um, spiritual practice and practices with the land. And I also want to address uh, something um, about uh, the ancestors as well. So, and this goes back to um, Langston's conversation about uh, ancestors that are well and ancestors that um, are unresolved. So I will admit my cultures have a little bit of a cop-out 
in that uh, because we believe in reincarnation largely uh, from Buddhist influence, we a, lo- a lot of people like to have a cop-out belief that the ancestors that we are working with are already well ancestors because the unresolved ones will simply be reincarnated uh, into, until they, they re- figure out how to resolve it. And so a lot of people leave it at that. But I d- but being someone who was raised in the U.S. and has seen a lot of different spiritual traditions, I do. I think there is a subtle nuance that even people in my culture need to be a little bit more aware of is that we, we in many ways, are, our bodies are embodiments of the land, um, but our bodies are also created by our parents who are also embodiments of the land. What that means is that when we talk about something like genetics, what you get from your parents and what you get from your ancestors, um, in many ways, the way that we live our lifestyle and the way that we develop physically and mentally is, um, is something... Does, can come come can come from unresolved issues and traumas within our own lifetime and that actually shapes uh how our bodies develop it it stays in the memory of our flesh and our blood and then that is what we pass on so even if a lot of the um generational and ancestral unresolved issues uh even if those whether or not those ancestors are still around becomes a little bit irrelevant because that is what is left within us. So in many ways, uh, the way I would almost interpret it is that a lot of the um, traumas, a lot of the the issues are passed out into us because we literally are the result of their flesh and blood. And uh, one thing that one of my elders that I was speaking with, she was actually a little bit annoyed by this. She keeps hearing Westerners talk about the concept of healing your ancestors. And that's something that annoyed her greatly. And that is because in her words, she said, we don't have the power to heal our ancestors. If we did, why the hell would we pray to them? If anything, they should be the ones praying to us because apparently we are more powerful and that is not the case. And, and sort of that was the very traditional um, culture, tr- traditional shamanic culture of thinking of things. Um, but after, you know, calming her down, this was uh, how our conversation developed. She said, a lot of those issues are that our parents had sort of get passed on into us. And then if we don't do anything about it, we pass it on to our descendants. And the really, w- the, really the best way to be able to deal with that is is to resolve that part within us, to resolve that um, that trauma within us so that we can't pass it on. And, and this is more of a cultural language, but she said the best way to do that is to perform karmic merits. Um, quick note about karma. A lot of uh, people in the West have a very skewed version of what karma actually is. To put it in simple terms, it's not about uh, doing good, doing evil, you know, like... P- punching someone and someone will punch you back. It's not, it's not simply like that. It is the balance of our relationship to the world in terms of our selfless, selfless deeds to the world and selfish deeds to the world. Um, and it's okay to be selfish as long as you are selfish as well. The goal is to remain in balance uh, with it. And, but the thing is, if there is a lot of um, trauma and unresolved issues that we inherit from our ancestors within us, if we are able to perform karmic merits, 
of being able to uh, not only just uh, heal ourselves and then uh, put out merits and service to the world, we can we are able to then undo that pattern within ourselves. And that is a quote unquote indirect way of healing your ancestors uh, because essentially what it also does is it resolves their karma as well. So whether or not they're on their uh, reincarnation cycle or if they're acting as a spirit or doing something else beyond, that part of the karma is something that we're able to resolve for them because we resolve for ourselves. And that way it actually also creates a better life um, for our descendants as well, being able to start them off with, um, with karma to, in the sense that not only do they not have karmic debt anymore to the universe, but they have karmic surplus where, to put it a little bluntly, the universe owes them. Um, and so this, and uh, overall, I uh, I think we're getting a little bit closer to the time. So I so one thing that I want to sort of put as a, as a lasting part of this talk is that um, brief summary. When we went over a little bit of what the word shaman actually means and what shamanic role actually means from the cultures where the word comes from, as well as just some. Um, spiritual concepts about, you know, the land, the ancestors, um, how we live. And, and I would like to end this by just uh, bringing up a little bit of a previous point, just to tie it back to uh, Langston's uh, thing about animism for the apocalypse. Um, so our world is constantly changing. We're constantly facing new issues, new threats, new uh, strengths and vulnerabilities. Um Shamanism is not something that has that came into existence and then just stayed like that. It it is a, even in traditional societies, it is a practice that is constantly evolving, that is constantly changing. That as it spreads to new peoples and new lands, it evolves due to the regional uh, differences and regional necessities. And I think within our current stage, as we think about our own spiritual practice. We can take tools like what um, Langston and his uh, contemporary shamanic um, communities have done. We can take a lot of principles and foundations and structures from traditional societies and, you know, reflect on how well that works. Uh, well, not how well that works, but reflect on how that those can be used for our own spiritual health. We don't have to do exactly the same things that our ancestors did. We don't have to do exactly the same things that that traditional cultures do. But uh, they've, they're the ones who have done the work for thousands of years, and we would do well to take those lessons and not only just apply them, but see if they're, see how we might need to adjust them for our evolving world. People have used these practices for survival. We need to survive as well as individuals and as a species. And I believe it is very important to take ancient practices uh, and and recycle, not recycle, like uh, apply them and see how we might adapt them for our continued survival on this earth. Thank you. Thank you, David. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. Thank you. That was fascinating. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Um, yeah, it's also super fascinating. And it's very interesting to, to, to hear because... Uh, uh, I think, and those who follow like the writings and the Fenris Wolf and, and things like that, that I have been thinking a lot about how central 
shamanic concepts are. And I, I believe it's very good, David, that you brought up this, this problematic thing. The role versus the practice versus the almost you know corporate branding of a concept, <laughs> but but if you look at it and and for the lack of a better term, let's let's use the shamanic. Uh, I think that um, it's such a core phenomenon and so simple that that in fact is a problem for most people in the Western sphere at least who are so used to things being obfuscated and complicated. Uh, but I do think that the reason why. It, all of this is emerging, and at the same time, everything that I claim to be is on top, meaning modern-day occultisms, different spiritual systems, uh, 20th century concoctions. Uh, all of this comes from the same source, and the reason why it's coming so heavily today is very much having to do also with Langston talked about, is that we are in an... Uh, perhaps not even imminent, but in an actual apocalypse. And we need to find new survival strategies that have to do with uh, making faster decisions. And that's really where all of this comes from. It's original people, wherever they were, having to make fast decisions about, as you say, survival, whether it's, you know, dangerous animals or climate or whatever. Uh, and there was always this tool of going somewhere else in your mind and finding answers that could be useful. And, and I think it's simply so integrated in the human, not only mind, but in the entire human infrastructure uh, that um, it's no surprise that it's making itself more present these days. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely say so. Um, I, I just noticed the, I'm, I'm uh, Langston is asking to uh, show his video again. I don't know who does permission for that, but yeah, but go back. Yeah. I would say that uh, every there's every culture's traditional um, spiritualities did have a little bit, they had their own um, goals for survival and goals for achieving the next level of spiritual um, awakening, let's say, and they all use different methods to get there because different methods uh, made more sense within their environment. Um, they they did they they did evolve in different ways. They evolved in different rules. Like for example, uh, for for mine, uh, for for North Asian, they actually said that the shaman need to be chosen by the next by the um, shamanic ancestral spirits, and then actually continue the cycle. When that shaman passes away, their soul becomes the next spirit that then chooses someone else. But that's just the way that they've done it. Um, every culture has developed their own patterns for uh, maintain, developing and maintaining spiritual health within the community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's also very interesting how, how uh, the key thing, the key thing that seems to unite uh, as far back as we can see and have documentation, it's it's uh, the trance state. And then whether you go continue the spirit journey or whether you experience things wildly, anarchically in a way, um, like today was, let's call it chemognosis, you know, people go on, on trips, you know, it's a very relevant uh, word. Uh, but the thing is that... Um, Culturally, I find it extremely interesting in, let's call it that Northern Asian region, because the trans state uh, became integrated in Buddhism. 
but mm -hmm. only in the northern part. So you have it in the Vajrayana and in the old Bon traditions of going into trance, and that's completely integrated into a, uh, you know, a very structured uh, system. Whereas in the southern near Theravada, you don't have that. Oh, yeah. You have med meditation, and you can possibly go on private trips while meditating, but it's not integrated as an integral part of uh, uh, an actual ritual system within Buddhism. There, so there's a... There's a historical reason for that. The Tibetan Himalayan regions did have pre-Buddhist um, trance um, practices that existed. And so when Buddhism came into the area, they did fuse together. There were like pre-Buddhist Tibetan and Nepalese shamans there already. So that's why when Buddhism came in, they uh, infused it. And even in some other Tibetan traditions where it's not expected for the monks to practice this, there is always that oracle that does the same thing. Yeah. But it, but yeah. it's not everyone. It's only specific people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is true for a tribe too, right? You know, the tribe has a shaman. So, so it's just like a continuation of, uh, of a structure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was so interesting for me to hear that the Sami is related too, because of course, since I moved to Scandinavia, mm -hmm. I'm like so interested in the Sami. And also, you're talking about like to get to know the different land spirits that you're with, because like when I moved from New York to Sweden, it's like my practices just changed, and and I didn't do it intentionally, but it was just like it didn't feel right to do things the way I was doing them. I just started kind of doing things in a different way, and then of course also like getting to know the Nordic gods and that sort of thing that I hadn't really uh, known a lot about before. But just like the way I do the, the practices that I used to do in New York, now I do them kind of differently here. But one thing I will say about the Nordic and Scandinavian land spears, they are extremely powerful and they they work in a very interesting way. I think I visited Scandinavia in 2014 and, and because land spears, they're not necessarily tied to lands, they can travel. Uh, I think they they actually followed me back and they've actually influenced my practice for a couple of years here uh, because of the, the, the very, the very nature of how those land spirits work. They really like to attach themselves to you. I think they're, uh, they're it's very different from land spirits here where they're like, we're here if you need us, but otherwise, you know, we're just, you're, you do your thing. We, we do our thing. The, the ones in Scandinavia, they really attach themselves to you. <laughs> they have their way of doing things. Yeah. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Did you have any questions or comments for each other? Or anybody in the well, audience? I thought it was, Feel thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. That was incredible. It's always a privilege to hear you speak. Um, thank you. Uh, one thing I thought was really interesting is your conversation that you're having with your teacher about ancestors. Because, So my approach to ancestral healing, actually, I, I come from two different lineages of, of approach that are contemporary traditions of that kind of healing. And it is understood by most traditional cultures that, yeah, we don't heal the ancestors. We go to the ancestors for guidance. So a yeah. lot of times what I found is when a traditional healer will be talking about what I would see as potentially unresolved ancestral baggage. They see it as maybe a curse potential. That's often the language mm. that would come out in divination, okay. like a curse that's going down the generations. Um, but 
and not that not that curses aren't their own thing too they are but that's often the language he referred to and what many of my teachers in these healing lineages found is that contemporary people were coming to them where what kept showing up in their divination their healing is where's the problem the ancestors and it would baffle them because mm-hmm. they were like the ancestors aren't supposed to be the problem like they're supposed to be the well ones that are helping and support maybe they have like a something they need or a disagreement but if they're not meant to be the root of the problem and what they found is that because of the sort of epidemic in cultures who for so long haven't tended their dead um there is this epidemic of unresolved dead who need healing and it's not so much that we in our power as humans the living have to do the healing but that we work with the um well ones the well ancestors that are still like you know the powerful good beneficent ancestors to affect healing but they need us to help affect that healing in my experience because as humans living with a body we still have free will we still have the ability yes. to co-create reality in a different way that we sort of give to the well ancestors to direct and guide the healing with the unwell ones and help them move back into alignment in that way. You know, it's interesting you uh, you bring that up because actually one thing that I've, that uh, this is one thing that North Asian shamans and the Buddhists there agree is that as humans, we have the most control over our, not only just the healing process, but the ability to affect our and change our karma. It's something that spirits can do, but it's so much more challenging for them. And as humans, we are in a very special privileged position to be able to do that. And another thing that, that actually just came to mind for me is uh, if, if it's framed as um, as generational curses, that obviously that adds a different connotation. It's it's in very much, in, in many ways, I see the concept. It's, it's very similar or the same concept, but it does affect the connotation. But that also just brings to mind uh, going back slightly to the land again, we actually believe that sometimes land spirits can be very fierce and can be vengeful if you uh, sour the relationship with the land to the degree that they can cast curses on a person and that curse will actually travel for generations because uh, as descendants, we carry that same smell of our ancestors. So the land spirits with their weird concept of time, they'll just keep maintaining the curse and it'll be like four generations later, same curse. Wow. And I was also fascinated with what you spoke about your teacher talking about, um, or not your teacher, but traditions talking about reincarnation of the ancestors and how the culture has come to sort of like reckon with that Buddhist concept coming into the culture. Because when I think about West African cultures who have both the concept of reincarnation and ancestors innate to their culture, mm-hmm. in those cultures, we sort of talk about the ancestors reincarnating down the ancestral lines. So you can be your own ancestor, but then you still, you can have a, like an ancestral issue or a sort of past life issue as two separate things that you might need to deal with potentially. So just so interesting how these different things get interpreted. I, I imagine that even different African tribes might even differ on exactly how oh, this absolutely. works, right? Because even absolutely. within North Asia, yeah. this is something that I've been thinking about is if you look at, I mean, sorry to people who don't understand or, or who don't have not heard of these terms, but the Buryat tribe, they are extremely Buddhist mm-hmm. influenced. They believe in that similar Buddhist um, reincarnation cycle of uh, like one soul reincarnates down the family line, another soul reincarnates randomly. But in the Darkhat tribe, their their belief in reincarnation and ancestry is completely different. Um, They actually say that the... uh, 
that the essentially the soul will reincarnate like just multiple times randomly but then when they finally finish their reincarnation cycle or even in the in-between stages they will help out um their descendants uh, of their most mm. recent life so it's it does vary widely even within the same general region or let's just say say same continental region uh, mm-hmm. is what I found and that's something that even as I've been writing my uh my new book that's coming out that's been something that I've been trying to figure out because if I'm confused how am I going to write in a book <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I, well, so I, I love the no, go ahead oh, feel free to go I was just going to say, I love the way the confused or not. I love the, the, the beautiful ways you articulate David, um, the different perspectives and the care you put to really the specificity of context and lineage in each concept that you bring. So I think that'll be a gift in your book just to have that. Thank you. Whether or not there's one definitive answer. (laughs) There's there probably isn't it's spirits have their own cultures like we do. So they probably do things differently up there. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, I love how I didn't do this intentionally, but how we kind of brought together this, like, the traditional perspectives that Dave is talking about, and also talking about, like, bringing it into contemporary times, and, like, how Langston's works with this community that's, like, a contemporary community, but how David also said, you know, how we can take the the knowledge from the ancestors in these traditional lineages and then kind of adapt them to our contemporary needs and times because I feel like so many kind of contemporary people, especially that are new to these kinds of practices, are so worried about like cultural appropriation and what what am I allowed to do? What can I do? What's my right to kind of work with? And like kind of helping people like navigate that as well. I mean, I think what it comes down to in terms of of any person's personal spiritual practice, they can do whatever they want as long as their spirits are cool with it, uh, is the way that I've looked at it. Where it really goes into the realm of cultural appropriation, in my view, is if you start trying to take ownership of that knowledge as opposed to acknowledging where it has come from, that's where it gets a little bit problematic. Or if you try to present yourself as an expert and taking away opportunities from people within that culture, um, that's also where it becomes a bit of a problem. But I think for personal spiritual practice, as, as long as their spirits are okay with it, like um, like I'll go back to that example of uh, after I came back from my trip to Scandinavia, I think I, the, like the land spirits there were uh, on me so much that I actually, at that time, I wasn't in, in that part of my spiritual development. I was actually thinking, should I be working more with, you know, Scandinavian traditions? I mean, the answer is no, to put it bluntly. It, it's no. It's just that the spirits were there. They noticed me. We had a thing. And that's what it was. Uh, it it doesn't necessarily mean that I should go into that practice because that practice, while beautiful, wasn't right for me. And that's something that I figured out. That's something that my spirits guided me to figure out. And that's how it, it's um, part of everyone's development, I think, is it will be exploring different traditions and then being able to figure out what works for you or what doesn't work for you, but you're grateful of the time that you had with it. Yeah. I think that's so important how you articulated that, that it's not, I'm not one of these super militant people that feel like you should only practice the traditions of your ancestors. Like I practice traditions of many peoples and also my ancestry is very diverse as well. So I'm one of those humans who kind of has to, practice many traditions i'm going to keep up with all my many (laughs) different ancestors around the world um but 
I think it comes back to that importance to rooting in the specificity of place that you talked about so beautifully, David, and, and listening and being and the way that in animist and shamanic traditions, all power comes primarily from relationship and from intimacy within that relationship. So rather than coming from like sort of an addictive, hungry place, like let me get this pretty thing and then instantly become an expert and monetize and extract it, how can I work to cultivate intimacy with traditions that speak to some part of my soul with respect. And to me, that's, the, that's like the easy way to avoid appropriation, just having concrete, authentic relationship that you're committed to developing over time. And of course, at the beginning, you have to explore and see if you want to develop that relationship just to feel, just like David described with the Scandinavian energies. Yeah, it, it, it always comes very interesting when I, I do come across people who definitely feel that they have to practice what their ancestors practice or they're pressured into it. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will say is because if you're doing your ancestral practice, the what the benefit that comes from it is because you have generations of people who have been doing that, that actually does provide more power to your work. But at the same time, um, because like if you are in a different place, you are in a different place. Um, but it also comes down to uh, whether or not that is actually going to make sense for you. It's um, I've actually been even offered to do an initiation with Korean shamanism, but ultimately we decided against it because uh, the way that a Mongol, the, my Mongolian shaman friend told me is you could do it. You have a little bit of that ancestry, but it will cut your power in half because it's not what you're supposed to do. It's not what your primary spirit uh, is familiar with. It's going to be a very rocky uh, like a relationship going forward. So that I thought that was a very interesting uh, perspective. And that's why I turned down that uh, offer of initiation. I think Langston, I spoke with you about it at the time as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense with yeah. my like divide your attention or divide your energies and you can just like focus yeah. on what, what you're doing. Okay. <sighs> Were you going to say something, Langston? I uh, know. I just wonder if there's any other questions now that we've been chatting away with each other. <laughs> yeah, if anyone from the audience has questions, let us know. I was also going to say, my own experience is also sometimes the spirits have their own agenda. <laughs> and like... They do. They definitely do. <laughs> yeah. Say so probably 100% of the time, which is why it's important to have yep. good boundaries with the spirit world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny. It's funny when I was just thinking about, about, about you, where, you know, the land that you were called to Vanessa, I think so, I know so many people who were called to different places of the land around the world through relationship, you know, and through, there's this like connection that happens. And then through that re relationship with a human, there's also this deep, rich relationship with the land that you might never have known you were called to until you get there. And you're like, oh, wow, this is actually really important for me. As well. Absolutely, oh, and it also goes goes uh, even genetically because Vanessa has a Scandinavian uh, heritage that that you yeah. actually didn't know, know about until recently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. now we have these the ancestry DNA tests or whatever, <laughs> and then they're like, "Oh, you're you're this much Scandinavian," and then as you know, I knew I had like Irish kind of area, and Carl was like, "Yeah, but of course they went down there and you know raped everybody and, <laughs> and everything had <laughs> had the Irish as slaves and stuff, and it's probably how it yeah. got mixed." But then even doing more ancestry, uh, and Carl can trace his tree way way back because he's always been kind of in the same area. 
And uh, we found out that like where my last name Sinclair originates from is like the islands in between like Norway and Scotland. And like, like my ancestors, like a thousand years ago, like where my name originates from, we're hanging out with like Carl's ancestors, like way back then. So it's been like a real interesting journey learning all this stuff. Long-term incestuous relationship. (laughs) Yeah. Our DNA has been hanging out for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Was it like the Orkney Islands or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Ah, that's so cool. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I mean, I just think things are so much more interesting than like the the clear delineations of online discourse might make them. When we allow ourselves to feel these pulls of the unseen world and the land and relationship and our hearts on us, while also wanting to respect how recently it's been that people's ancestors were criminalized for doing these practices, you know, like, just like, like just thinking about black folks who were not allowed to have drums that use them to communicate with each other, losing, you know, the sacred rhythms that were used to call certain spirits and preserving them anyway and through their ingenuity. But, um, you know, all different indigenous peoples around the world who very recently, like as at least at the seventies were outlawed for, um, from practicing and could be put in jail. And so, I think as we navigate the pulls of the land and the different traditions, we also want to hold our understanding of our own rank, power, and privilege in relationship to the culture we're inhabiting and sort of the theater of that culture. And so entering into traditions that are not of our ancestry as a respectful guest and, and, and just as we would as a guest in anyone's home, behaving a little differently than we would when something and, and even and, I, but, and then even the people who are of that ancestor, usually when you're entering into something, you still enter as a guest. That's just what's expected, you know, in any tradition that you're entering into and beginning to learn in versus this culture of like the second you start learning it, start teaching it because that's how you learn best. Like this sort of like, you know, online course <laughs> mentality, Instagram mentality sometimes. Yeah, story of my life, always being a guest in. A, even when I go, even when I go back to North Asia, it's like I, I, I'm like a stranger going like, "Oh, thank you for having me." And it's just you know, very, very big voice. And uh, it, you know, it's it's really interesting how you mentioned because yeah, I feel like a lot of these uh, ancestral practices were banned uh, or or uh, persecuted for one reason or another. For us, it was mostly a communist persecution for that. And and the entire reason, even Buddhist persecution persecution when they came in contact, and that's the entire reason why, in addition to the drum, most people there now also use jaw harps um, to induce trance as well, which is not something traditional, but it emerged within the past several centuries um, as a way to incorporate And it's been so it's been used so much that it's really funny. Now there are ceremonies and rituals that can only be done with a jaw harp and cannot be done with a drum. And that's how it, that has developed, which I find very fascinating. That's amazing. And uh, even several years ago, uh, when when I started studying actually African-American hoodoo, obviously I was going to be a guest in that um, situation, but it was my own spirits that actually urged me to do that. Um, so I can better understand uh, a, a practice that was developed in a way very, very significantly on this land. So I can be able to connect with the plants and the, the spirits here on this land and also the folk magic of this land. That was something that I've always found very fascinating that my North Asian ancestors kind of uh, urged me to do. And to that, I had to become a guest within the uh, African-American uh, cultural spiritual perspective. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. It's wonderful. And I love the, like how Langston described us as custodians. And you said, David, too, that we are guests here. And so maybe just thinking, you know, treating our surroundings and each other more in that kind of fashion rather than, you know, people just thinking that they, you know, can do whatever they want with the earth and also thinking of us as separate from the earth rather than like working with the earth, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I was thinking when, when you said that, uh, Langston, about uh, being custodians and the importance of that. And you also mentioned the word uh, progenitor, you know, as the progeny, you know, creating something that usually in the human framework takes over and exploits in a way. Uh, but maybe a better word that popped up in my mind when you when you were talking about that is uh, to be a progenitor, a progenitor <laughs> who takes care yeah. and sort of makes sure everything functions. Instead of exactly. being someone who pushes himself onto it. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, I mean, to me, animism and shamanism, uh, shamanistic traditions and animist traditions have always been dialectical. They always are responding to the needs of their time as living traditions. They're not just about like what we believe. They are about what we do primarily. And and what we do based on what we've seen works for thousands of years as humanity doing this human experiment. So I'm just, uh, I love all the, I love that story you shared about the jaw harp, David, this is an example of this, that, that there's certain functions to maintain health as humans in right relationship with the earth and the invisible world that we need to get done. So we figure out the way to get them done in the time that we're in with the tools that we have access to. And so that's what I, for sort of my, the most interesting to me when we think about animism for apocalypse is how do we learn from the humans that have gone before us who have navigated endings to approach the ending we're in right now in a way that we can move through in a good way or, or, or just approach it with love if we can't even move through it. How do we approach this ending in a way that we are proud of the ancestors that we were in this time? Yeah, definitely agree. It's a part of, uh, I I will admit, part of how I tried to tailor sort of what I was going to talk about was going to be picking up on themes that you touched on because I did also want to connect them together to give uh, my talk a little bit more of a structure, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was great. But this is what we need right now. Mm -hmm. For sure. Should we stop with that? Did anyone have anything else? I guess I'll just share some some questions I didn't get to say during my talk that I was going to share. Just like, you know, what might you risk imagining past apocalypse? Like, what are you keeping yourself from imagining because you're thinking, well, it's all going to end anyway. But like, what, what, not bypassing the apocalypse, but what might you imagine through it, through to the other side of an ending? <laughs> And, and again, what are the stories you wish to carry to the other side with your life? Like, what are the stories you want your legacy to be when you're an ancestor? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I think that from, from uh, a very personal point of view, I think uh, I justify uh, a lot of what I do 
in you know every day in terms of work, meaning writing about these things and making books about these things. I justify that work, which is not really profitable, uh, by uh, securing, uh, helping secure uh, new source material for the post. You know what happens afterwards, uh, and I, I would I would love for remnants and or you know shards of people to find stuff later on saying at least there were some people here trying to formulate uh, what was wrong and how to fix it and la da da because otherwise everything that humans have done will simply be a testament of failure. Uh, you know, whether it's the digital information that will be completely gone. So we're, I'm still a book person. I think books will remain if there are no, you know, huge fires or something. Uh, but in that sense, leaving a little bit of a, perhaps not a legacy, but a little testament that some people actually tried, you know, with, you know, meetings like this and formulating it in books and carrying on traditions that have been uh, proven uh, beneficial and healthy. So that they can maybe build something anew. Yes. Yeah, and I've always felt that from both you and Vanessa as pretty unique humans in that way, that with with all that you do, you do, I would call it a legacy that 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 you are leaving. Um and a and a real, not just a legacy. I want to talk about legacy, I'm not talking about like the things we make that we leave behind, but even more so the way you both do what you do as I witness it in my limited perspective and that attention to care in your relationships and in the relationships you try to forge between practitioners and between disciplines that, that create something bigger than the sum of its parts that can be left behind. So mm. I, I really appreciate both of your work in that way. Yeah, Thank you. And I also, uh, on that note, um, think that both Vanessa and I are um, conscious uh, caretakers of some kind of spirit or legacy or a tradition, whatever you want to call it. Um, whereas most people, uh, not most, but many young people that I've met uh, this recent decade, they are so immersed, of course, as you are, in trying to find their way, in trying to formulate an identity, a spiritual, magical identity, and it's all natural. Uh, but they see themselves, at least temporarily, I hope, as just like very unique little islands in this vast ocean of possibilities, whereas in fact, there is an instigation at some point in their life that led them to that. And that's their legacy. That's the tradition they're coming from, uh, whether it's formulated as such or not. It could be someone on the, on the subway reading a book that catches your eye, and that leads on to something very substantial. But I think in both, uh, both our cases, and I think that's valid for all of us here tonight, is that we are uh, privileged to be conscious of uh, what we carry forward. And that's an immense uh, luxury. Mm-hmm. You know, p- part of the reason why um, I-, I start entering into that sort of mindset is because for-, for most of my adult life, I was exactly like, as you uh, mentioned, Carl, I was trying to like, you know, figure out maybe just uh, like on that development path. But I think as I was uh, doing my own research, doing my development, enhancing my own practice, I keep getting the, the, the book that I have published and the one that I will have published soon, they're not, none, neither of those are instances of me going out going like, hey, can I write a book? It was publishers coming to me and hunting me to write a book. And I've actually turned them down multiple times before I finally gave in and said yes. <laughs> and um, and that, and actually it's, 
in this conversation, something that has occurred to me is that um, for, for a lot of these indigenous traditions, they, they were very much oral traditions. We've been very good at passing them down orally um, it, uh, throughout most of history, but in times of history, and I think now is one of those, when there are challenges to being passed out, passed out orally, uh, a lot of indigenous cultures, we are very, we are very bad at like uh, writing them down and making sure that they get passed down that way. And I'm sure there is a reasoning against doing that, but I think uh, in, in our current day and age, that's something that we have to think about being able to leave a, a, a tangible remnant in addition to uh, these traditions being passed down simply orally, because like it or not, these oral traditions are the ones that are disappearing the fastest. Um, and and there come and there comes a time when there is a generation of really old uh, elders in various cultures that have this mentality of well if it dies it'll die and and not not to disrespect them but I think that's uh, them speaking from a privilege of a long and full life almost um, and saying that oh whatever happens will just you know the course of things and. Um, and I think there, at some point, there is a responsibility for of us as we um, not only just discover, but you know, practice and enhance these traditions to make sure that they do um, survive and get and get passed down for the benefit of future generations. Obviously, if they refuse to, there's nothing that we can do about that. But uh, if they if they want to, we there is a responsibility of us making it available, I think, um, just so that they can be able to be able to learn from it. And I think I like w- with my family having survived through communism where a lot of records were burned, I think this has created a little bit of a cultural trauma for us where we, in many cases, we don't have access to what happened before um, the 20th century uh, or even uh, further than that, um, through various uh, regimes um, throughout the continent. Um, so I think uh, w- one of the best things that that we can do uh, is be able to make sure that it is um, preserved if someone wishes to find it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why, personally, I'm so invested in the community that I'm part of and the many communities I'm part of because we, I don't think individuals can pass down traditions, really communities pass down traditions. You know, it's, it's hard. No one individual can hold a tradition. We can hold parts of traditions, right. we can hold par- aspects of lineages. And so mm-hmm. um, books help books, you know, books help, like you're saying with sharing that information and, and preserving what might be lost in a purely oral tradition and to me, the most important work of this time right now is community creation, that willingness to show up, not from an extractive model of like Amazon of like, I get what I want when I want it instantly, but community is the opposite of that. It's like being willing to show up and give your time and sacrifice your time and resources when you're not necessarily getting exactly what you want. And it's not going to be like the most interesting all the time, you know, it's going to that willingness to keep showing up and remaking community through that engagement. And that commitment to those future people that will be coming that will need that community, not even just for the people that are already in the community. Yeah. Absolutely. Beautiful. So thank you for all the ways that you both build community, <laughs> Vanessa and Carl. And thank yeah, you. it was really thank wonderful speaking with you, David. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, I think it's a responsibility, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I was in my hardest times, I always remember the the community that was there. So I just try to make sure, yeah, that that's, there's space held like that for other people when it's their time to, yeah, engage in it in some way and people can find mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a really good point, Langston, that, 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 that is what's happened over time is that the, the, cult, the cultures and communities have broken down and haven't had these kinds of holding spaces for people going through these spiritual crises or shamanic illnesses or, you know, even just like you've talked about before, going into the next like level of life from childhood to adulthood and things like that. And so there hasn't been these kinds of spaces to hold, hold people through these transitions and difficult experiences. And it's left a lot of like debris that now we, we have to really address and kind of help clean up, you know, maybe that's also kind of manifested in the physical world with all the pollution and stuff. Maybe there's a kind of parallel process there with uh, the spiritual debris and the, pollution yeah yeah i mean when you tie back to our conversation about ancestors earlier you know one way of thinking about ancestors and the living particularly in west africa is like this idea that the ancestors um get reincarnated as babies you know and when they when they come in and so one of the reasons the ancestors are so invested in us being well and the world being well is they want to come back to a good world you know so it's like when we break these relationships, we break relationship with the land, break relationship with our ancestors, break, break relationship with specificity of place. It's like we, of course, we're going to just extract and pollute. And so it's like, just again, I think it just comes back to the core lesson of animism and shamanism, which is how do we begin repairing the relationships we're already in? All right. Well, thank you, everyone. That was amazing. Yeah, th- thank you so much. And thank you, Morbid Anatomy Library, yeah, for hosting yeah. this. Always. Thank you for thank all of this. Yeah. yeah, everyone is great. Yeah, thank you, everyone who came to sit with us on a Sunday. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, no, that was yeah. really good. That was really nourishing. Yeah. This was fun, too. <laughs> really, yeah. really fun. And of yeah. course, you're both welcome back anytime that you want to come back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion between Langston Khan and David Shi. For more, visit previous episodes of Rendering Unconscious, where Langston Khan was the guest. To find these, you can search the alphabetical list of guests at renderingunconscious.org. As always, thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music to Rendering Unconscious podcast. You can visit his website, carlabrahamson.com, for more information. And now the song, Ancestors of Blood and Adoption, from the album Kaleidoscope of the 23rd Mind. The newest release that I've done with UK Sonic Mastermind Pete Murphy. Visit his bandcamp, petemurphy.bandcamp.com. All the music there is Name Your Price, so download and enjoy. Lady, Lisa Lyon.
Jean Laplanche, Eros, Maya, Maya, Brooklyn, Sally, Renoir, and Techniques, Hallucinations, Marilyn, Monroe, Peter Beard, Ivy, of Marilyn, Monroe, Sally, Brian Dyson, Aphrodite, Asangoma, where Caitlin and I will discuss our, like Vivian, Lee, Kimbanda, Einstein, by Stadium, Salima, Lady Death, Myra Breckenridge, Lafonche, Alice Thought, Bombagiera, Anton LeVay, Jane Mansfield, Have I sent this to you? The Devil, Kerouac, Ivy was smart, Ginsburg, Lilith, I like how Brian, Geisen, Neil Cassidy, Herbert Hunky, Hendricks, Anton LeVay, Into the Devil's Death, Sally, Alias, and Thanatos, Anthony Balch's Ghosts, Lilith, Maria Padilla, Lilith, Jarek Jarman, Jean Genet is nowhere to be found. Nietzsche had reached several. Marshall McLuhan, Vanessa, recitation of Shakespearean. Ian Curtis, I was staring at Max Ernst, Vanessa. Man, I like it that way. I like the quiet. I like Vanessa. Vanessa. Well, Vanessa. 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 Vanessa.